After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with him except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much to be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Leadership's a pretty big idea in this day and age. There are endless conferences that you can attend, seminars, workshops that you can do to improve your leadership skills. I uh, had a quick look on Amazon uh, at how many books there might be on leadership. So I just typed in leadership and found that there were more than 60,000 books on leadership that you could purchase through Amazon. Now, I'm not sure how helpful those books would be. What worries me is that that kind of leadership thinking kind of creeps over into churches as well. And a lot of those leadership ideas make it into the church. So I had a quick look on Kurong. Uh, biggest Christian bookshop in Australia to see what they had on leadership. Did the same thing, just typed in leadership. They had 4,380 books that I could get on the topic of leadership. Some think that they're offering biblical ideas on leadership. Most of the time it's just rehashing old business ideas from the world and trying to pass them off as being Christian. But let me give you a couple of gems from some of these books. They just picked a little handful of them, had a quick look at them to see what their thoughts were. Uh, some of these are from uh, people who are senior pastors of churches. Uh, let me start off with this one. Anyone can steer a ship, but it takes a leader to plot the course. That just stirs your heart, doesn't it? That sort of stuff. You think, yeah, that's right. Oh, there's this. You can't win without good athletes but you can lose with them. I'm not even sure what that means. <laughs> so, great leaders gain authority by giving it away. And it's not the size of the project, but the size of the leader that counts. 
Now, I'm not sure how any of those actually can get passed off as Christian ideas on leadership. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't have leaders or that uh, there aren't such a thing as leaders, skills that leaders can have or biblical principles that they can follow. The surprise is that what Jesus says about leadership is completely radical, completely different to what we would understand of leadership today. The main focus of this section of Mark's Gospel is looking at this leadership. Uh, the leadership that Jesus exercises, what it means to be a disciple and how it is that we should act if we're in that position of leaders. Um, but before we get to what Jesus has to say about leadership and discipleship, there's one more clear insight that we're given, a passage that Nola read for us, that gives us one final insight into who Jesus is. Uh, chapter 8 finished with Peter recognising that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, the saviour that God has sent into the world. Now, while he may be right in recognising who Jesus is, he certainly hasn't understood the kind of king that Jesus will be. So we come to the beginning of chapter 9, and Jesus takes three of his disciples, just three, Peter, James and John, takes them to the top of a high mountain. Now, could you please note, have a look in your Bible, Mark wants us to be clear it's at the top of a high mountain. We haven't just gone for a wander off somewhere else. This is a significant detail for us to understand. And while they're standing on top of the mountain, it says that Jesus is transformed. Mark doesn't give us too much more detail than that, just to say that Jesus became this brilliant white, whiter than anyone could have ever bleached it. And they stood there and two people appeared. Moses and Elijah. Now, I'm sure that you've had this experience when you meet someone famous or someone important, you go to speak and rather than saying something sensible or helpful, you just come out with a whole lot of dribble and you feel really embarrassed because you've said something stupid. Well, it's no surprise that Peter will be that person in this particular episode. He's so excited, so frightened by what's happened while he's up there that he suggests that they have a sleepover, pitch a couple of tents, stay up there for a few nights, make the most of it. But what's going on here? What's this all about? What's the point of Jesus appearing with Moses and Elijah? Why not with Abraham and King David? Why not with Joshua and Daniel? Why is it these two people? Well, if you open up most Bible commentaries, they want to suggest that these two people represent the law and the prophets. But I think there's actually a much more simple answer than that. These two men, Moses and Elijah, have a unique experience in common. In fact, they are the only two people from the pages of the Old Testament for whom this was their experience. They both met God on top of a mountain. They both encountered God on the top of a mountain. For Moses, it was in Exodus chapter 24 when the law was given. And for Elijah, it was in 1 Kings chapter 19 when God appeared to him on top of that mountain. See, this whole episode is just one more confirmation of who Jesus is, that he is God. See, Moses and Elijah are now meeting with God on top of a mountain again. It doesn't happen for the benefit of Moses and Elijah, and it certainly doesn't happen for the benefit of Jesus. It happens for the benefit 
the disciples. And this happens for our benefit as well. And as if that isn't quite enough, there's a confirmation from God whose voice booms out, verse 7, then the cloud appeared and enveloped them and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. We are to trust Jesus, we are to follow Jesus, we are to listen to Jesus. Now this forms the turning point in Mark's gospel. Uh, the focus now changes. Jesus spends a lot less time with the crowds and a lot more time with his disciples. Now that the disciples understand, hopefully, who he is, Jesus can clarify what it is that he's come to do, what it means for them to be followers of Jesus, for them to be his disciples. In chapters 8, 9 and 10, Jesus says that he has come to die on the cross. But he also wants to stress that following him is not going to be easy. People will be tempted to give up. People will be tempted to pull back from following Jesus earnestly. And there are some issues that he talks about in this section. So go to chapter 9 and find verse 43. Jesus is talking about the things that may cause you to stumble as a follower of Jesus or, or the sin that we might have in our relationship with God, things that may impede us from being serious about following Jesus. And he suggests a pretty radical step for us there in verse 43. Verse 43 if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life or enter life maimed than with two hands and go to hell where there is fire, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worms does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, sadly, throughout the history of the Christian church, there have been a couple of people who've taken this a little too literally. This is hyperbole from Jesus. He's saying we are supposed to cut off those problem things. We are supposed to make sure that they are not part of our lives. He's not physically saying that we ought to mutilate ourselves, though there have been a few people who've taken it that way. He's not literally saying that we need to get rid of our hands or our eyes. But there are things that you do need to get rid of if you want to be serious about following Jesus. There will be things that will stand in the way of your relationship with God, things that will hinder you from following Jesus and you need to take radical action. Jump ahead to chapter 10, verse number 17. We get a real-life example of this happening and someone needing to remove something from their life so that they can follow Jesus. Chapter 10, verse 17, a rich man comes to Jesus and he wants to know what he must do to have eternal life. So what does Jesus say to him? Well, Jesus knows this man and he knows this man's heart, so he quizzes him about the commandments, whether or not he's kept them. And this young man assures Jesus that he's kept the commandments since he was a child. So Jesus says this to him, verse number 21, Jesus looked at him, 
and loved him? One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. What a bombshell that would have been in the conversation. I bet the rich man didn't see that one coming. And I'm only guessing, but if Jesus had said, you've got to give away 20% of everything that you've got and then come and follow me, I think he would have said, done, sold, I'm in. Or if Jesus had said, right, well, from now on, you've got to pray 10 times a day, he'd say, I'll do it. But Jesus has stunned this man, and let's be clear, he stunned the disciples as well. But also, let's be clear, this is the only time Jesus ever made that demand on anyone. It's a specific instruction for this specific person. Because look at what Jesus goes on to say, verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. And at this, the man's face He went away sad because he had great wealth. He went away sad because he loved the idea of his money more than the idea of following Jesus. He cherished his money more than he did forgiveness in God's eyes. He treasured money above Jesus. Now, to be clear... Selling everything you have is not a prerequisite for following Jesus. But you really should be asking yourself the question, if Jesus said to you that you have to give up your wealth, would you be willing to do it? Would you be willing to follow Jesus if it meant parting with whatever it is that you've got tucked away in the bank or in your superannuation? Well, Jesus wants to show that his kingdom has radically different values to the ones that we see in our world. I don't remember too much of my primary school years, but one thing that really does stick in my mind is that being at the front of the line was always really important. You know, how, I mean, the worst thing that the teacher could do to you is say, right, you, end of the line. You just felt you'd been cast out into oblivion. I mean, it was such a terrible thing. And the great reward was to be able to get to the front of the line. You, come up here and take the, take the lead here. Well, those ideas about being first and last kind of hang on a little bit into adulthood, don't they? They just look a little bit different than a primary school student's lining up. We place high value on being first, being respected, being in charge, being in that position of leadership. Well, we have two episodes in these chapters where the disciples are fighting about who's best, who's most important. Go back to chapter 9, verses 33 and 34. We see the first one. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest, that is, the greatest among the disciples, who would be at the front of the line. They're arguing about which of them is most important. Seems pretty childish, doesn't it? I mean, grown men, followers of Jesus, and they want to argue about 
who's the best, who should be at the front of the line. And then jump down to chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, that is to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, in both circumstances, Jesus gives almost identical advice. Back to chapter 9, verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, the servant of all. And then he expands on it in, when he has this conversation in, in chapter 10. Jump down to verse 42 of chapter 10. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Greatness in Jesus' kingdom doesn't come from being in charge or from being the boss. It doesn't come from being first in line. Being great in Jesus' kingdom means being a servant, taking your place at the end of the line. And that's exactly what Jesus modelled in his life, wasn't it? Jesus, the man who is God, came down from heaven, emptied himself, took on the very nature of a servant. He came to serve, to serve us. He washed his disciples' feet. He didn't come into this world for his benefit. He came into this world for our benefit. He endured what he endured for us. If you want to understand the kingdom that you're a part of, then you need to look at Jesus. If you want to understand what it means to follow Jesus, then you need to look at how Jesus lived. If you want to understand about discipleship, how you should live in this kingdom, then you look to Jesus. It's not about trying to make yourself important. It's not about position or power. It's not about being first in line. It's about serving others. It's about being the last in the line. It's about being willing to serve others. Now, there's more in these two chapters, but uh, two practical things that jump out for me are getting rid of the things that hinder you in following Jesus and working hard at having an attitude of service. Don't let things hinder you in your Christian life. That's clearly why Mark has given us all of this. It's clearly why Jesus has said all of this. Jesus said that his followers need to get rid of those things that are going to prevent them from being faithful followers of Jesus. So what are the things that are hindering you from following Jesus faithfully? Do you think that there are things that do hold you back from being 
a more faithful follower of Jesus? And more importantly, what can you do about them? I mean, Jesus suggests some pretty radical action here. Maybe there are priorities that you need to rethink. Maybe there are attitudes that you know you need to change. Maybe there are habits or lifestyle choices that you know don't really fit with being a disciple of Jesus. I mean, the fact that you're sitting here this morning would suggest that you place a priority on following Jesus. So what's the next step in putting that into practice more faithfully? And being a disciple means being a servant. That's the other issue that Jesus wants us to rethink from the things that he says here, isn't it? It's about greatness. It's repeated in the mess- it's a repeated message right through the pages of the Bible. It's not about being the leader. It's not about being seen as the leader. It's not about having the best seat. It's not about having the place of honour. It's not about having the position or the title. It's about being like Jesus. It's about being a servant. It's about not thinking of yourself first, but thinking of others. It's about serving. How are you seeking to serve others in your life? And and especially those people who are part of the church here at Campbell Street. And the list of things you could do could be quite endless. Maybe it's something as just speaking to someone that you haven't spoken to for a few weeks or maybe even a few months. Maybe you know that there's someone here at church who who needs a phone call. You need to have a chat with them and see how they're doing. Maybe there's a ministry here in this church where you can help out. Music, morning tea, kids' church, music and playtime, youth group, kids' club. Maybe it's just as simple as actually getting to Bible study each week. may not sound like serving, but if you're not there, then it's hard for others. We can't serve you if you're not there. Maybe it's something like supporting a missionary, praying for them regularly, financially supporting them in what they do. Maybe it's just driving someone to a doctor's appointment. I mean, the list could go on and on as to how it is that you could serve others within the life of our church. Sometimes it's just a matter of looking around. But there are countless opportunities for you to be able to serve. What we need to do is be committed to following the example of Jesus, the leader that we seek to follow. 